Nick Timmings, skeleton athlete heading to Beijing for the Winter Olympics very, very soon, part of the Where Do We Begin Winter Olympics series. I was talking to you just off air just a second ago, mate, about how that music, we paid a bit of money for it and we think we should just use it for the Winter Olympics episode given we, we forked out for it. But it sounds a bit Christmassy. Do you reckon it sounds Winter Olympics-y enough to be on a Winter Olympics podcast? It's, uh, I love the bells. It's very wintry, so I think it's appropriate. Okay, thank you very, very much, Matt. And we just recorded Pocket Profile for about oh, 10, 15 minutes, something like that, I'd say, for the for the Patreon members, which I encourage people to check out if they haven't already. So first question I'll put to you, mate, what was the, the curliest, the trickiest question that I asked you in that Pocket Profile episode? Oh, I reckon uh, it would have had to be the where, like, would I go back in time or into the future and, like, what would I see? Yeah, that kind of stumped me a bit. Uh, that's a, oh, I really like that question when that comes out of the hat. It's a, it's a good one. Get some good answers out of people. <laughs> Mate, we'll get into the kind of the main event here, what the podcast is all about. The Winter Olympic sport that you're in is skeleton. Now, right, I'd say probably 95% of people listening to this have got not haven't the foggiest about what skeleton is. So can you give us a bit of a rundown, uh, as you probably have done a million times in the last few weeks, about what the sport of skeleton is all about? Yeah, so um, I think people would be able to like kind of visualise bobsled a bit easier. So pretty much it is in the same track as a bobsled, um, but we are on a, we call it a sled, but some, it's, it resembles kind of like a, a tray with um, metal rods underneath. So we're sliding on one of those on our stomachs going headfirst down this ice track. Um, yeah, I think that's the easiest way to describe skeleton. Right, and how long is how long's the course and how quick do you go down? Uh, so depending on the track, will uh, the length will vary, but uh, the regulations stipulate between 1,200 and 1,600 metres um, is the track length, yeah. And you can, like, obviously, again, depending on the, the length of the course, we can do between 49 seconds and I think about a minute 10. Jeez, that is very, very quick indeed. And when people watch videos, they'll see that the kind of skeleton athletes are they're very rigid they've got their hands by their side and I guess yeah they're maybe moving their hips we'll talk about it later to kind of maneuver around the track and the course but what are the rules about how rigid your body has to be and how much movement you can have so pretty much as long as you're on the sled and your head crosses the finish line first like you can do whatever you want but if you're moving around and like yeah um all all over the track, you're going to go slow, so yeah, you won't get a very good time. So the better athletes will be very still and very relaxed on their sleds. Okay, right. That's interesting. I, I always just assumed that it was a rule that you had to be totally rigid. But, yeah, I guess it makes sense that that's the quickest way to go down. But and why why is it called skeleton? That's that, It confuses me a bit. Uh, it originated, like, from the, the look of the sled, actually. So we have, like, a saddle part, which kind of like wraps around our ribs and it, it does look like a rib cage. So I think that's kind of where they, uh, where they developed the name skeleton and probably because um, it's kind of like the skeleton of a bobsled. Like it's just a bobsled without the cover taken off and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's where the name came from. Wow. Interesting. Now you've given us a very good description of uh, kind of skeleton for newcomers, but uh, you've done a few media spots over the last few weeks. Do you enjoy explaining the sport and filling people in? 
Yeah, I do, I, like if people are wanting to know about it, I love explaining it. Yeah, if they're interested, definitely, yeah. Um, usually back home, like outside of winter Olympic year, like people like kind of ask you what you do and you'll say skeleton and they kind of look at you and go, oh, okay, and then just like walk off. So was, in those times I'm like, ah, oh, like, yeah, all right, I don't want to explain it anyway. So, But, yeah, if people want to know, I love explaining it. Yeah, well, mate, I loved your explanation. So thank you very, very much for providing us all with it. So we've covered kind of broad skeleton chat. We'll, we'll talk skeleton a bit later. But why don't I get to know you yourself a bit, Nick, Nick Timmings? So you're from WA. But t- tell me about your family growing up. Was it a loud family, quiet family? What, what was the situation? So family consists of mum, dad, and I actually have a twin brother, Dean. So it was the four of us. And, uh, yeah, I think... Having twin boys in the house was a bit of a, a handful, a yeah, very high-energy household. So, um, it, yeah, I'd say it was very loud and very energetic household growing up. <laughs> and Dean's into the skeleton as well, isn't he? Yeah, so he's done this, yeah, all, all the years I've competed. Um, unfortunately, we didn't qualify two positions for the Winter Olympics. Um, but, yeah, he went away this year as well and uh, competed and did races. So to get those two quota spots, it's – you need to be top, is it 25 in the rankings? And he just missed out on that top 25? So it's not determined on the set ranking. Um, to get spots in skeleton, we have to be in front of a certain amount of other nations. So to get a second spot, he would have had to be the second ranked Australian, but he would have had to also be, I think the last second nation spot was Austria. So he would have had to be ranked better than the second-ranked Austrian to get in. It's kind of confusing, but, uh, yeah, once you, like, see the list and kind of look through it, you kind of realise what's happening. But, yeah, it is complicated. But, yeah, it just depends on uh, what other countries, like who, what their athletes are doing and how they're, how they're positioning themselves. Yeah, right, interesting. But he was, he was pretty close. Uh, for the second spot, unfortunately not, because they cut five positions from the last Winter Olympics, so we knew it was going to be an uphill battle and uh, – yeah, I think our goal at the start of the season was just to make sure one of us qualified. Yeah, right. Okay, well, uh, you've been successful in that goal, I guess, with yourself, Nick qualifying and all kicking off in what, about uh, two week, two and a half weeks from now. It's going to be very, very exciting. But how, how did you and Dean, uh, your brother, get into the sport originally? Because from WA, it's, uh, yeah, it's not known for its skeleton athletes. Um, so we actually had a, a high school PE teacher who went to the Vancouver Winter Olympics in 20, uh, 2010 for bobsled. So, yeah, he was our teacher back then. So we, that's how we kind of knew about the, the sliding sports. And um, the so the National, the Australian Federation went recruiting like athletics, sprinters and jumpers. Uh, so, yeah, so they came to Perth and, uh, yeah, we, we were doing it at the time and kind of heard about it and, yeah, just decided to do the, the kind of tryout. And, uh, yeah, all spiraled from there. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome story. What, what was the name of that PE teacher who went to the Olympics? Uh, so his name's Duncan Pugh. Yeah, he was in the bobsled in 20, uh, 2010. Representing Australia? Representing Australia, yeah. Awesome. Well, big shout out to Duncan if he's, uh, if he's tuning into this one. But uh, I, I know you were into your, I think it was your soccer. We were talking about how you're a soccer fan uh, in the pocket profile and into your athletics. But what gave Skeleton the edge for you uh, to kind of pursue that long-term and get to a high level of Skeleton compared to, yeah, your soccer and your athletics? Um, 
I always enjoyed like adrenaline sports and yeah, like high paced sports, um, like skateboarding and snowboarding and that. So, yeah, so always enjoyed doing them. So I think that's kind of where the, the adrenaline junkie inside of me came from. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, a decision, like an injury from soccer that um, pushed me towards skeleton to give it a go. And uh, yeah, since then, I have uh, yeah haven't looked back really. So that's interesting. You're into your adrenaline sports overall and Duncan did the bobsled. So why not bobsled instead of skeleton? Just body shape, really. Yeah, uh, bobsledders need to be huge, yeah, heavy. Um, and yeah, it's kind of not what the body shape I have. I'm kind of like tall and lean, um, which is ideal for a skeleton athlete. So yeah, I, when the tryouts came around, I kind of looked at everyone else, looked at myself and said, yeah, this is, this is uh, more suited towards me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good, mate. And yeah, you clearly cut out for it because you're going to Beijing uh, very, very soon. But I think you went, am I right in saying you went to the junior world champs in the year that you started I and mean, you finished pretty high, yeah? Uh, yeah, so I started in March in 2012. So that was actually the end of a season, um, but then came back obviously sliding again in November of that same year. So, and at the end of that season was World Juniors. And I think I can't even actually remember what I finished. I think it might have been 13, 15, something like that. It wasn't too bad, but like nothing fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, but I guess it was a successful like first year. So, yeah, I think you finished 13th of those junior world champs. But in that kind of between starting and going to those world champs how do you how do you practice because it's summer in europe so i'm not totally sure if you can go over to europe and uh well it costs a lot of money as well go over to europe and practice and don't know what the facility is like in australia but how did you practice over those what eight months or so between those two uh kind of events yeah like we don't there's no sliding sliding training in the off season yeah like you said it's uh european and north american summer um during our winter so yeah, we couldn't do any sliding. Um, it wasn't until probably end of October, start of November that we flew over to Canada and started training and sliding again, yeah. So you started becoming a skeleton athlete in March and then you really got into the training in October, November and you finished 13th in the Junior World Champs. Mate, that, that's nuts. That's bonkers. Like, how were you so good so quick? Uh, yeah, I think... I don't, like personally, I don't think I was that good, but uh, clearly I had kind of some knack for it. Um, but yeah, I think we had the right coaches around us, which gave us kind of the foundations of how to slide. And I think that's very important. Like I'll see a lot of rookie athletes now and they just don't have that kind of knowledge around them. And yeah, you don't see them developing very quickly. Um, but yeah, you, I think this is an experienced sport. So if you've got the people around you, you can like rapidly, rapidly um, yeah, improve. So what made those people around you so good to be around and such great coaches? I think probably their style of coaching like suited me very well, um, as well as them obviously being very experienced and uh, previously very talented at um, sliders as well. So I think it was a combination of those two. So did they tell you specific things that like juniors who don't have such uh, great coaches as those guys did they tell you specific things that really helped push you along yeah I think it's more giving you like the fun 
fundamentals, like the basics, um, which help you kind of develop your own skills. Whereas if you've got a coach who's telling you exactly what to do, like every day, every corner, everything, you kind of don't learn it yourself and then like your development is halted. So I think it's probably the same with every sport, giving the found, like a coach giving the foundations of the sport will help that athlete grow so much quicker and yeah, um, help them get to a higher level. So what are those fundamentals? Uh, with sliding, it would be like the main ones are um, being relaxed on your sled, like feeling the pressures of the corner, um, knowing where you are in the track and uh, yeah, I'd say awareness of yourself and the track and, yeah, like the ice conditions, there's so many factors. But, uh, yeah, kind of building this, this self-awareness um, when you're in track I think is the most important thing. Can you fill us in a bit more on the details of, like, feeling the and knowing the pressures of the corner? Yeah, so like now I can go into a corner and, like, not see the exit or see the entrance, but you can kind of feel – how you go in. If you go in wrong, you're like you'll feel the pressure hit you harder and you'll know you have to steer harder. But if you go, it like just feels smoother. Um, and some of the big corners, like you'll be able to actually feel the waves going in the corner and you'll know if it's you're on a fast line or you're on a like dangerous line. Um, so yeah, I think just being able to notice that and identify that is is probably the key factor. And that's yeah, that's what I mean when I say like feeling, just being able to feel feel the pressure really, I guess. The G-forces, yeah, is probably the best best way to describe it. Yeah, it's really interesting that, that when you're starting off and maybe when you're trying to go around those corners, are you, are you bashing in and smashing into walls heaps? Yeah, so many walls. Like my first three seasons, I reckon, my like some tracks, my arms were just black from bruises. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Like the first time you go down, you get to the bottom and you're like, what just happened? Like everyone says the same thing and yeah. – it, it definitely takes time to, to yeah, build all that up. And, uh, yeah, your first couple of years, definitely very painful. And it, it sounded from what you were saying, it sounded like you can't see a whole lot when you're, uh, when you're on the, is it the sled that you called it? Yeah, yeah, sled. And, yeah, so when you're new to the sport, like your head will be uh, like well above the sled because most people will try to see where they're going in and out of corners. But uh, if your sled is high, your shoulders won't be touching the contact patches on the sled, which means there won't be equal balance between your shoulders and knees. So that'll cause you to be unbalanced and will cause you to skid. So if you're looking, um, you're, most likely your shoulders will be high and you won't have like control over the sled. So yeah, that's you're you're essentially not driving your equipment correctly, really. All right, very interesting. I'm really enjoying you uh, kind of giving us all these details about scars. It's very very interesting, mate. So thank you. But uh, I want to know if like are, are there particular sports that really or skills from other sports that really translate well into the skills of skeleton? Like if oh jimmy johnson in grade five was really good at soccer does that help him at all with skeleton i'd say soccer wouldn't be a very good one uh, apart from maybe for a fast sprinter um and maybe have good hamstrings that'll be the only thing but i think sports like downhill mountain biking and maybe even surfing when you're like kind of pulsing on the wave um feeling those kind of changes and those pressures that, that's probably the most um identifiable thing maybe like obviously car racing going around um, with G-forces as well is probably very transferable. But, uh, yeah, your, your usual footy, soccer, athletics, 
I think your physicality is the only thing that will be transferable. Tell me about the hamstrings, mate. So is it just that like they have to be tense the whole time? Just because we're at, at our push start, we're bent over sprinting as fast as we can. It puts a lot of load on your hamstrings and the starts, they start flat, but they'll go downhill. So we're actually running downhill bent over, uh, which is a very bad position for your hamstrings. So yeah, I think this sport is the, the probably the most um the most known injury to athletes is probably hamstrings. Right, interesting. Interesting. But I, I think for for lots of Olympic sports and maybe winter Olympic sports even more specifically, the uh, funding and the kind of financial aspect for their athletes is just such a massive challenge. So can you talk to us a bit about the, the financials of yourself and Skelton? Yeah, like you said, like in some of these winter sports, like um, funding is just non-existent. Yeah, like we're, we're pretty much doing it for the love of it and we yeah, do it off all our own back. I do get, uh, yeah, little bits here and there, which definitely help and make it possible. But uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, all off. Like I have a I have a job when I get get home uh, in the off season. So yeah, I work, save up, and then uh, yeah, go compete. But yeah, it is a very expensive sport as well. What's your job? So my title is venue supervisor, and I work at like a sports and events stadium. And uh, m- me and my team just help. Uh, organise and run events and sporting competitions and that. Can I ask what stadium you work at, just in case we've got any listeners in Perth that might, might see you there? Yeah, so I work for Venues West and the venue I work out of is uh, HBF Arena in Joondalup. HBF Arena in Joondalup. Well, look out for Nick Timmons if you see him around. Uh, HBF Arena in Joondalup, guys. But just back back on the um, kind of financial aspect of skeleton, the the sleds, I'd imagine they'd, they'd cost a fair bit, right? So they'd take up a large chunk of your earnings. Yeah, so my sled, it's actually, you can, you can see it in the background there. Um, it cost me 10000 Australian dollars just for the sled. And uh, so we call them runners, but the metal rods underneath, they're, they're kind of like F1 tyres where we'll interchange them depending on the weather conditions in the track. And so they cost $1,000 each as well. And, uh, yeah, you'll... Like, obviously, if you can afford multiple sets, you'll get as many as you can. Um, but, yeah, so I travel with four sets of those as well. So they're, yeah, valued at $1,000 each. Uh, obviously, you don't want to be a cheapskate and get some shitty $100 sled. But, like, what, why does your sled cost $10,000? What makes it so, uh, so special? Uh, I think the price, really, I think it's just the monopoly. Like, there's only two or three sled beetles out there. So literally, if you want to be a good slider, like you just have to bite the bullet and buy one of these sleds. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know how to justify $10,000. But uh, the, so the one I have, he's a very reputable slider and like a lot of people have won um, World Cup and Olympic medals on the sled. So yeah, it's still, I think it was the right choice for me. Well, I've, I've heard that they, from $10,000, they can be way more expensive than that as well, can't they? Yeah, so the last Olympics, I knew, I know, I think, I know at least two of them, but probably more were on sleds valued at like up to $100,000. And I think just like my, yeah, mine is like a kind of stock sled, just like off the off the line, but uh, theirs would be like fully tweaked and um, customised to the individual athlete. And yeah, obviously 
I think the material inside this sled is probably different. Like, obviously, I don't know because they're never going to show me inside this sled. But, uh, yeah, I think all those little things add up. And, yeah, that's that's why they cost so much. Showing you inside the sled, that that's interesting. So, like, if, I, if you showed me inside your sled, what would I say? Like, really, all you would see is just a bunch of metal and you wouldn't understand what's going on. Um, just looks like, yeah, shiny metal, really. What, like, can can you try to fill me in so I do understand what's going on at all? Um, yeah, so there'll be two, like, big plates in the middle and they kind of, like, sit there and there's, like, screws in them to um, bolt our saddle in. But there's also, like, a frame, obviously. Um, there'll be shoulder bars and knee bars uh, and then all the little just holes and um, screws in that to, to fit the, the runners in and, yeah, all the other little parts. But... Like, really, it's just a frame with the body plate in it, knee bars and shoulder bars. It's pretty much oh, it. Jeez, oh, 100 grand. That is just insane. Does anyone, do any athletes on the circuit make their own sleds or have a crack at it? Yeah, there have been some athletes have made their own sleds. There is a ruling, though, that if you're um, – sled you're competing on has to be available to the rest of the other athletes this is just to make it like fair across the board but uh there are definitely some athletes who have made their own but usually they're not very fast they haven't done enough like research and development into it and uh yeah usually they don't do very well so what why wouldn't they be fast what what if they stuffed up in the making of these sleds compared to the hundred hundred thousand dollar ones like you I think you'll you'll definitely find like so my manufacturer all the sleds look exactly the same but there definitely will be differences in the sleds like I know some people have thought they've had like faster ones or slower ones so there definitely are differences and uh, I'm sure that's the case with like all the sled manufacturers all the individuals who who have made their own sleds so yeah I think you just really have to trust the equipment you're on and uh, try adapt to yeah the, the equipment you you get. Right, and can these sleds break? Yeah, definitely. There's been some breaks this year. Like I've seen many things snap and, uh, yeah, like the metal plates inside bend and I have to bend it back and like re-weld bits on and, yeah, they definitely do break. So like they break during runs? Yeah, it'll be from hitting the wall, yeah. Oh, jeez. And has that happened to you much? Uh, so luckily, no, I haven't found any like bends or anything. Um, and at the moment I think my sled's going pretty fast, so I'm not going to touch anything. I'm not going to bend anything. Um, yeah, luckily touch wood, it hasn't happened to me, but uh, yeah, I've seen some people crash pretty hard and, uh, yeah, being bends in their sleds. Well, mate, you, you're going to Beijing and you've got that one sled in the background and they cost so much money, but if that broke, do you, do you have a backup or what happens? No, I would have to try quickly source um, either like if a part broke, I'd have to get a new part or if the whole thing broke, like I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably get my brother to quickly, like, he's on the same sled as I am, so I'd, I guess I'd have to quickly get him to ship it over or something like that. But, yeah, there definitely are times where like at the airlines will lose athlete sleds and they kind of just stuck at races or they have to borrow like another sled or something like that. Yeah, it becomes a nightmare. Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that doesn't happen to you or anyone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fingers upcoming. crossed. Yeah, you're crossing your fingers, so am I. But, um, yeah, talking about funding and all that kind of thing. So 
yeah, like I said, fu- funding's just so massive in almost every Olympic sport because they're not the like the biggest sports in the country. I think it's fair to say, and it's it's a massively, massively political thing for most of these sports. So, why do you think winter sports as a whole uh, deserve more funding than they're currently getting? Um, I think yeah, there's a lot of like I th- obviously we're heavily funded. We're heavily funding summer sports in Australia because of our climate and the participation rates. But I think, uh, yeah, there's a whole different world out there, like with the winter sports. And obviously we have heels and um, snow resorts over east. So I think, uh, yeah, there definitely should be more money into it. And I think, like, as, as a country, we definitely outperform our budget in Winter Olympics. So I think, uh, I think yeah, we should pump more money in so, so we can be a powerhouse in summer and winter Olympics. Yeah, and... The, the audience would just skyrocket, uh, I'm guessing, if the more money got pumped into it and we outperformed even more the, yeah, the budget and the expectations. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, like the better we do, the more people are going to watch. Like, if, like we are doing extreme sports, so I think people do like watching it. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, if we give it more exposure, I think people would definitely be interested. So what is it about skeleton specifically that, uh, like compared to all the other winter sports, why, why do you think that's got the edge and why do you think Skeleton specifically should uh, get a bit more government government money, government cash? I don't know if I'm uh, selling it too well here, but I think people would be uh, keen to watch all the stacks and crashes and, uh, yeah, just the excitement of it. I think that's what will bring people to, to watch and participate in it, yeah. <laughs> so when, when you're watching Skeleton, how do you watch uh skeleton as a as a viewer oh i definitely enjoy the stacks and crashes it's 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 still good to see yeah yeah i think i don't you'd be lying if you <laughs> didn't if you said you didn't uh didn't enjoy a, a bit of a flip or a, a stack here and there but uh yeah i just enjoy the precision of it really like seeing one of the like top athletes go down like not seeing them move at all and having like a, a good line is um yeah it's, it's very like pleasing to me to see that so you've like at, at by this stage you've become successful. Like you go into the Olympics and like maybe you can just step up from there, keep going on and on and on. But you you need to be successful to not lose just a shitload of money, really, in skeleton. I think with this price of the sleds and the price of the travel and all that. So what were what was your thinking when you decide to pursue? Like elite level skeleton and like a risk losing all this money. Oh, I think it was just for the enjoyment of it. Like the goal was just to be like get the furthest I could get and see how far I could I could push it and how far like up the world ranking I could get. So that was my goal really. Um, obviously, the money does play a factor. Like you have to kind of decide how long you're going to go away for, like how much equipment you're going to buy and that. So I think, uh, yeah, like you have to kind of have a balance between um, spending all the money and competing in that. But, uh, yeah, really it just came from the love of it, love of the the travelling, the seeing all these places and then, yeah, just the adrenaline of um, actually competing. I think that that's what really pushed me to do. Yeah, is there a particular place that has stood out for you? Yeah, I've got a lot of favourites actually. Probably three I would name. Um, Whistler in Canada, 
uh, it's a good place and very, very scenic and uh, the track's pretty gnarly, which is always fun. Um, Koenigsee in Germany is actually, uh, I think it was, it's, so it's built below one of Hitler's eagle nests. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty nice area there. It's got some history to it and it's uh, very scenic as well. So it's a good place. I think the third one would be St. Moritz in Switzerland. And that's the only track in the world where they actually hand carve it each year out of snow. So yeah, it's got a very different feel to it. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice place as well. Wow. Incredible. And how, how much, uh, like how many months per year are you spending overseas? So I've been away since the start of October this season. Um, usually I would be able to come home for like two weeks over Christmas. Um, but obviously because of COVID and the restrictions, I haven't been able to get back to Australia, but uh Usually the season lasts from, I'd say, mid, mid-October mid to about uh, end of Feb. And, yeah, I'll, like I said, I'll come home for a couple of weeks um, over Christmas. But, yeah, that's that's typical season. How did you cope with not being able to come home over, over Christmas? Because that would just suck. Yeah, like obviously last year was COVID. Like we got hit pretty hard. And going away this season, I, I was – 99% certain I wouldn't be able to come home. So the kind of expectation of knowing I wouldn't come, be able to come home kind of, yeah, like I wasn't surprised. So, yeah, I managed to, yeah, just cope. So is everyone else, like all the other athletes that you're with, are they all going home for Christmas and you're kind of stuck by yourself, just, I don't know, watching Home Alone in bed at night or what, what's the deal? Yeah, so all the obviously all the North Americans and Europeans, yeah, they do go home for Christmas, so it's lucky for them. Um I, I am lucky. I have a friend. He's actually from Perth. He now lives in Italy, and he's only uh, like three and a half hours from one of the tracks. So I went and visited him uh, over Christmas, and yeah, I was lucky enough that um, yeah, they were very accommodating and had me over for Christmas. They included me in all their family lunches and dinners. So yeah, I was, like ate so much food over Christmas and saved on accommodation and saved on food. And funny, you actually said that we did watch Home Alone as well. So yeah, it was a good Christmas for me. Oh, mate, you have to. It's a, it's a t- tradition. should be a tradition for everyone. should be compulsory, I reckon. But I agree, what, yep. for you, for you, Nick, what, what is it that – what's the thing or things even that motivate you to get to the top and get as high as you can and, yeah, get the highest placing you can at these Olympics and maybe future Olympics? I think just uh, – yeah, I always wanted to be like a sports person and I always kind of had the, the like, notion in my head that – got to do it while you're young like you can't wait till you're older like obviously your, your body's just going to get frail and uh yeah your fitness is going to go down so that was kind of just my mentality growing up was yeah hey i wanted to be a sports person and i just wanted to do it as long as i could and from there i can't i think it just kind of stemmed on like you get to one level and you go okay like what what now and you try to try to improve and get better and yeah i think it just kept like the, it was just like a ladder just kept going up and my goals kept sh- Shifting and yeah, I'm I'm fortunate enough to have got to this position now. How many years do you think you've got left in you? Luckily for skeleton, um, so guys winning World Cup like golds and medals and that uh, World Championship medals, they're like mid thirties now. Some of them probably even actually. There's a guy who won a World Cup this season. I think he's 38 or 39. So there is a lot of longevity in skeleton. Um, so I think. Yeah, if my body can handle it, and if they, if I can financially, um, if it's financially viable, I'd, yeah, I'd love to continue. I think I've definitely got an, at least one more Olympic cycle in me. And what you're thirty thirty one now? Yeah, thirty one. 
31, right. Okay, yeah, so I guess if people are still doing it at 38, 39, you've got a lot of time left. But we're talking about kind of what motivates you to reach the the pinnacle of the sport. But uh, kind of extending from that, who motivates you? Are there specific people that motivate you to get to the top and reach those heights? Um, I'd say my main motivations didn't come from like actual athletes. I think it was more like family around me. Um, my mum's older brother was a, a general manager. Like he worked for professional soccer clubs and yes, like the love of sport came from him. And like, although he wasn't an athlete himself, seeing him work so hard within sporting organizations kind of just wanted, um, yeah, like I wanted to, to push as hard as I could. Um, yeah, and see where I could go. So I think my main motivators came from, um, yeah, my uncle and, yeah, just family around me. Love that, man. And you've got uh, – am I right saying you've got two coaches? That, that's what I saw, at least. Yeah, so but I, technically I have three, actually. Oh. So I've got a sprint coach back in Perth, a uh, strength and conditioning coach back in Perth, and my sliding coach is actually – he's Canadian. So I've employed him for um, the last couple of seasons. Right, and uh, what are the names of these coaches? So my sprint coach is Leonie Derby. Uh, my strength and conditioning coach, uh, his name's Adam Walski, and my sliding coach is Jeff Payne. Well, it sounds like they're doing a very, very good job, so props to them. But for, um, for qualifying, uh, we were talking about how you qualified before, but does Australia have much of a history of uh, skeleton athletes qualifying for the Olympics? Yeah, so we've had male and female representation uh, at the Winter Olympics every game since 2006. So, uh, yeah, we're doing pretty well. Oh, pretty well indeed. And how how well have they done at the Olympics? When This is your first one, but the people who were there in the past, how well did they do? Um, so there used to be a, a women's program. So they had, the women's skeleton had actual full pr- program so they had like um physios and coaches travel with them they had a full team environment um this was funded by the ais so during those days um they were getting some pretty good results like i think the girls won a couple of world cup medals i think their best olympic finish might have been in 2006 actually i think it was i can't remember it might have been a sixth place um but since then i think we've got maybe 10th 13th uh I know the last male at the Olympics, he got 17th. Um, so it's anywhere between those ranges. Right. And what are you aiming for yourself at, at Beijing? Uh, so my goal is a top 20. Unfortunately, there was, there was a test event in October. Um, just because of logistics and funding, I couldn't get there. So I've actually got a lot less well, – I, I don't have any runs on the new track – Whereas some of the, actually most of the other athletes have have got about thirty to forty runs there, so I'm at a disadvantage. So I think top twenty is um, is my goal, and yeah, I'd be happy with that. But surely you're going to be able to get some runs in before it kicks off properly, yeah? Yeah. So we've got two. We get two days of training before the official training week starts, um, and then we've got three days of official training. So I'll have ten runs on the track before we actually compete. Right, okay. Well, I guess 10 is something, but it's nowhere near that 30 or 40 that people have had before before you've even had your 10. But I think I, I was reading, now bear with me as I read this out because it's a bit of a long one, but 
2021, it says you were the overall men's skeleton champion for the IBSF, uh, the International Bobsleigh and Skeleton Federation, the North American Cup 2021. So tell me about that. That seems like a pretty good thing to have achieved. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, yeah. So I was the North American Cup overall champion. Um, Yeah, that consisted of eight races. There was three in Whistler, um, two in Park City, and then three in Lake Placid. And yeah, just the overall points combination of those um, eight races was the champion. And yeah, I actually didn't know that I won it until the very last race. Um, The Spanish guy who actually came second, he told me like, yeah, you picked me. And I was like, oh, I wasn't even counting. Like I was there just to get the points for the Olympic call. And yeah, I didn't even realize I'd won that. Oh, amazing. And what set you apart from the Spanish guy and all, all the other people? And what, what made you win the overall champion? Uh, what made you become the overall champion? I think it was consistency. Like I was, I did win a couple of races in the Lake Placid race, but I think all of my results were good. Whereas other people had like, they would do decently one day and then the next day they would like um, have a big mistake and blow out at the back, just stuff like that. So I think consistency is what, what won it for me. And is that the greatest achievement you've had so far in your career or has something topped it? Yeah, there's a couple of good moments. That's definitely got to be up there. I think um, yeah, this year has I've, I've had a lot of good um, achievements personally and, um, yeah, like memorable ones. But, the, yeah, that definitely has to be up there. I think there's probably about maybe two or three others that are, pro- I'd say, tied. What, what are those two or three others, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, so I had my best World Cup result this season as well, which was 19. Um, and because of the size of the World Cup field this year, that uh, I think that was a very good achievement. Like, if you're in the skeleton world, you know, like, actually, so in that race, I beat the previous Olympic gold medalist. So I think that was a big achievement for me. So that, that was one of the ones I count. Oh, mate, that, that's absolutely massive. When you're on form and when, when you've uh, achieved all these incredible things, what's, like, what, what, tell me about your headspace in these moments. Like, what's running through your mind and, like, why are you on such good form? Oh, I think relaxing is the main thing um, and having confidence in your, yeah, your ability and your lines. Um, I think that's, that's the main key that kind of puts you in a good headspace and puts you in a good position to be able to do well in races. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, that's what I can say about it. Lovely, Matt. And we've got a traditional final question that we ask to all our guests before we get into our famous, famous, famous final segment of the show that everyone absolutely loves. But the last question before we get to that is, Nick, do you, do you have a life philosophy, like a, a quote or a mantra or anything like that that you live your life by and uh, sort of let guide your decisions in life? No, not really, actually. I'm not, I'm not really too much of like a quote guy, like live by this kind of set of ethos kind of person. I'm like if my friends would say I'm like very chilled, very laid back, um, yeah, I kind of just go with the flow. But I, I think if, if they ask me, I'm, uh, I'm a very hard worker. So I think discipline and probably just hard work is the main thing I kind of focus on in my head. Um, yeah, I'd say that's probably it for me. Well, simple but effective. Well, I like it a lot, mate. But I mentioned this very famous final segment that we have. It is... Look, I'll, I'll say it's probably up there with the Winter Olympics in the biggest competitions like around the globe, really. It's called the Where Do We Begin Quiz, and I'm going to hit the music. Mm. 
Now, here's the deal with the Where Do Where Begin quiz. All our listeners will know that usually we pit Lockie, the co-host, against the guest and they go 1v1, they lock horns in battle for the ages as it always ends up being. But obviously, Lockie's not here, so and he's not going to be here for lots of these Winter Olympics episodes, unfortunately. So we've got to kind of mix up and get a bit creative with this quiz. So at the end of this quiz, I'm going to post up on our, all our socials, a leaderboard for all the Winter Olympians and how many questions they've got right. So I've got Winter Olympic space questions for you, Nick, that I'm, I'm also going to put Winter Olympic space questions to all our other guests. Eight questions for you. So you get, well, how many of you, how many ever you get, you'll be at the top of the leaderboard after today because you're the first person that's done this quiz. So well, I guess congratulations for that. Very well done. But yeah, eight questions, some about skeletons, some about the Winter Olympics in general. Are you ready to go? Cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. And mate, no no pressure, but I'll, I'll just say this is if you do well in this, if you get eight out of eight, it's probably up there with winning the North American Cup. Maybe maybe even Olympic gold. I'll just say that. But I've got some special quiz music that I play when I ask the questions. So here we go. Nick, what is the southernmost city to have hosted the Winter Olympics? Southernmost city. The Salt Lake City? Nick, Salt Lake City is incorrect. <sighs> the answer in Japan is Nagano in 1998. Oh. So, unlucky. You haven't got off to the greatest start, but you've still got seven questions. And like I said, you'll still be top of the leaderboard at the end of this, however you go. But question two, I'll hit the music again. Only one skeleton athlete in the history of skeleton at the Olympics has won two golds in the event. What is the name of this skeleton athlete, Nick? Uh, Lizzie Arnold. Lizzie Arnold is absolutely correct. He's on the board. Nicely done. Very good. One from two. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Move to move to question three. Nick, a bit of a general Winter Olympics one here. Which country, boarding Switzerland and Austria, is the only nation to have won medals at the Winter Games, but not the Summer Olympics? You're in Austria right now, I believe, for all our listeners. I am. Wow. The Czech Republic? The Czech Republic. No. Is incorrect. No. It's not the Czech Republic. They've won two golds, two silvers, and six bronze, all in alpine skiing, and the country is Liechtenstein. Ah, okay. Have you been to Liechtenstein before? No, I haven't. Yeah, I should brush up on my geography. Yeah, you haven't. Well, I think I saw it's like the fourth smallest country or something in Europe, so I don't blame him for not getting (laughs) that one correct. It was probably a bit of a tricky one. But we'll move to the fourth question. You're one from three, but you've been good on the skeleton one, so I've got another skeleton one for you. In the history of skeleton at the Olympics, 11 nations have medaled in the event. So I'm going to give you four countries. One of them is not in that group of countries who has medaled in skeleton. So the four countries are Norway, Russia, South Korea, and Austria. Which one of those countries haven't medaled in skeleton? The answer is Norway. Norway is spot on. Nicely done. Two from four. Uh, it's not bad. Half and half. Uh, and I, th- I think Norway, if I'm right, is has got the most medals for 
just overall Winter Olympics, but no medals in skeleton, interestingly enough. But we're halfway through. Question five is this. Just general Winter Olympics. How many Winter Olympic Games have had no events take place in the month of February? Oh, I say two. Nick, two is incorrect. The answer is zero. Every Winter Olympics has had some kind of event take place in February because I guess that's when winter yeah. is over in, uh, over in Europe and North America and Asia even. But question six for you, getting every second one right so far. So I think you're due for this one. Hit the music again. In the years that skeleton has been an Olympic event, because sometimes it hasn't been an Olympic event, but in the years it has been an Olympic event, Australia's not sent athletes for the sport three times. So in the years where skeleton was an event, in which three Olympics did Australia not send any skeleton athletes? I don't know that's correct. I think it was only 2002 that we didn't have a skeleton representative at the Olympics. Wow. Mate, I might have to double check, but I believe there were skeleton events in St. Moritz in 1928 and St. Moritz in 1948 as well. So, but between you are correct, those, yeah. Between those, they didn't have any skeleton, but Australia didn't send athletes to St. Moritz in 1928 and 48 and Salt Lake City in 02. But so that, that means you're unfortunately incorrect. <laughs> I was, I was scared right. for a minute right. there yep. that I hadn't done my research correctly, but you backed me up there, so thank you for that, mate. Uh, what are you? I, I think you're two from six, so if you get the next two right, you'll square the ledger and be four from eight. Are you ready for question seven, Nick? <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know if I'm ready, but yeah, let's go. <laughs> okay, well, fingers crossed for you, mate. I hope you get this one. Here we go. What is the motto of the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing in 2022? I should know this one. This is embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, Nah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you could probably just guess it because it's very generic. The answer is together for a shared future. Okay. That that means you're incorrect. Uh, well, gonna... I, I'd be amiss not to play the sound. First. I have to do it. I have to do it. Sorry. I'll remember um, that one from now on, though. Yeah, <laughs> mate. Um, you're two from seven. This is our last question. You can be <laughs> three from eight if you get this one. The last question is this. So, as you probably are aware of, skeleton is being held at the Yang Huin. National Sliding Centre in Beijing in a few weeks from now. So, what is the distance of the skeleton course in Beijing? Uh, is it... I know it's the longest track. Is it, I'm going to say 1659. 16.59. So, if you get this, you're three from eight. Get a bit of a drum roll going and pop the tension. The answer for this question is 1,615 metres, which means you're incorrect. But top of the leaderboard, uh, two from eight. So we've got to to play the top of the leaderboard music. There you go, mate. You've, uh, yeah, top of the leaderboard. So well done on that. Uh, How do you feel about your performance? Uh, I got some homework to do, I think. (laughs) 
but I think that just about uh, wraps up the what the quiz and the podcast in general. So thank you very, very much for coming on, mate. I really enjoyed chatting with you and, yeah, appreciate it. No problems at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, of course, thank you very much, guys, for listening. There's another Winter Olympics episode coming out very, very soon. We're smashing them out at the moment, so we'll see you shortly. <laughs>